This is the Life Church Podcast. For more messages, to watch our live stream, or to find other events, go to lifechurchnow.org. So we're in this series, As You Go, where we've been talking about being a witness in this world. And, uh, you know, over the years in my ministry, I've become increasingly aware of God's compassion for those who are lost and disconnected. In fact, it's just something that really drives me is a person who is lost and disconnected. And part of it is just a, that I remember. I remember when I was lost and disconnected. I remember how God changed my life. And it's, it just drives me. It pushes me. It propels me. I just feel this compassion towards him. And I think of the woman in John chapter 8 that was caught in the act of adultery as a perfect, beautiful example of, of God's love and compassion for those who are lost and disconnected. Um, this woman is caught, it says, in the act. So we don't know exactly what that means, but you can assume that basically they busted the door down and they were in the act, right? And so they drag her to Jesus. They throw her at Jesus' feet, and they're saying, the law says that this woman should be stoned to death. And what is so cool is see Jesus' response to that. He doesn't yell at her. He doesn't berate her. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't um, throw rocks at her. He doesn't do any of that. In fact, what he does, he kind of stands in between her and these religious bullies who are trying to basically take out her life. And he says something pretty crazy. He says, I don't condemn you. But wait a minute, Jesus. She she was caught in the act. I mean, this is not like hearsay. This is not somebody just talking about her. She was actually caught in the act. She is guilty, and according to the law, she should be stoned to death. He says, I don't condemn you. And then he goes on to say, go and sin no more. And it kind of reminds me of this of this phrase that we use around here all the time, come just as you are. Come with all of your baggage, with all of your hurts, with all of your sin, with all the stuff that you've done, the garbage that's back there. Just come just as you are. And then we always tag tag on to that, but don't stay that way. In other words, God has a, a great life for you. He has great purpose for your life. He has design for your life. And if you're here and you come loaded down and weighted down with sin, I'm sure that you're saying, God, I want a different kind of life. And he's there to offer it to you. So come just as you are, but don't stay that way. So in this, in this, in this scene of this woman caught in the act of adultery, we see a very, a very clear message that Jesus is, is giving. He offers compassion to her when he says to her, I, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. Can you imagine how she's feeling for the very first time in her life? She's feeling like somebody really does see her. Somebody cares for her. But then he goes on. He says, go and sin no more. So he offers her conviction as well, compassion and conviction. That's really what I want to talk about this morning. That we should be people of compassion and we should be people of conviction. That as you go, you are a person who who lives with compassion and also with conviction. So in this series, as you go, that's what we've been talking about. Last week, Chris brought up the, the woman at the well and how her interaction with Jesus. Jesus had said he had to go. He must go to Samaria. He didn't have to. I mean, most Jews would go around, but Jesus had to go to Samaria. Why? Because there's this compassion that's driving him to meet this woman at the well. He interacts with her, and 
brought her to a place of transformation. Today we're going to look at 1 Peter. Peter is talking to some very persecuted Christians. He's trying to help them come to terms with what does it look like to faithfully live out your Christian life in a world that's very hostile towards you. What does it look like to faithfully be a witness in this world when, when, when people don't get it, people don't always understand it, people struggle with what you have to say? What does that look like? And that's what Peter's basically addressing in 1 Peter. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter that we are strangers in this world, that really we're just passing through. Another word for strangers, aliens in this world. We're, we're just, we're, we don't, this is not our home. There is a heavenly home that one day Jesus is going to come back and he's going to take us with him and we're going to be with him forever and ever and ever. That we're just passing through. This is not our home. And consequently, he, Peter says, hey, you should live lives that are holy, therefore. It's not your home. You're just passing through. You should live distinct lives. Different lives. Lives that are set apart. And when you live those lives that are set apart, the world will notice. That that's really what it means to shine the light in this world, is that you're living this distinct life, that the world notices it. They see it. What does that life look like? So today, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about what, that, that what it looks like to have convictions. Right? What does it mean to have convictions? But at the same time, that means we're living holy lives, but at the same time, how do we couple that? How do we keep intention, compassion, and love towards others? And that's really where we're going today. First of all, what does it mean to have convictions? Peter lets us know that we live in a world that's very shaky. It's a lot of shifting sand. A lot of ideologies that are constantly shifting, and in a world like that, we need something solid. We need to live convicted lives and that that solidness that anchor that we have is really God's word that's what Peter's addressing he says in in first Peter chapter one people are like grass their beauty is like a flower in the field the grass withers and the flower fades in other words there are things in this world that are very much a part of our lives that eventually will fade they'll be gone your house as be- as beautiful as your house is as much as you might love your house it's going to fade away your vehicles, your jobs, all of those things that we, that we invest energy and time into, much of that will fade away. And he goes on, but the word of the Lord remains forever. There's a lot of ideas out there. There's a lot of philosophies out there. There's a lot of opinions about truth out there. And these ideas, these opinions, these, these philosophies will eventually fade and wither. But God's word, the word of the Lord will stand forever. That's essentially what Peter's telling us. So we live in a world where this is clearly happening. There's a lot of ideologies, a lot of philosophies that are floating around. In fact, in the last 50 years, it's accelerated because of technology. You can sit at your computer, Google anything, and you'll come up with all kinds of ideas, all kinds of philosophies. In fact, even this morning, after first service, somebody presented a philosophy of, of the Trinity and, and of the Holy Spirit to me that I had never heard before. There's a lot of ideologies, a lot of philosophies, a lot of things that are going around. And Peter's saying, listen, in light of all of that, you need to be people of conviction, people who understand God's word, that anchor yourself in God's word. That's what he's telling us. We need to be people of conviction. 
Now, let me explain the difference between belief, though, and conviction. There is a difference between belief and conviction. Um, belief is something that you, you hold as, as true. You, you cognitively acknowledge it as truth, right? It's, a, it's this idea that you've accepted a truth. But convicting, conviction goes a little bit further than that. Conviction would be the demonstration of a firmly held belief. It's the action part, right? It's, the, it's not just the recognition of it, but it's the action that follows this belief. It's the demonstration of your belief. That's conviction. Howard Hendricks says it this way. He says, belief is something you will argue about. How many of you have been at work and you said, somebody would ask you, hey, do you believe this? And you say, oh, yeah, I, I believe that. And they're like, well, I don't believe that. And then you might even have an argument about it, right? And you walk away. It's just over. But conviction is a little bit different. A conviction is something you will die for. So Peter is speaking to some Christians here who are going to die for their convictions, not just simply for their beliefs. They're going to die for something that they hold on to dearly and deeply. Now here's a tension for us. We're called to be people of conviction, right? People who are willing to probably even die for our faith, strongly held beliefs, but we're also supposed to be people of compassion, much like Jesus was with that woman caught in the act of adultery, right? He had compassion on her. Somehow or another, it just didn't, it wasn't really registering with him the fact that she was caught in the act. What he saw was a woman that was suffering and hurting and who knows what she had experienced in life and he had compassion on her. He, moved, he was moved with compassion on her. And that's really hard, isn't it? To ride that tension I've talked about this before, the tension between truth and grace and how sometimes we, we can, you know, you can characterize yourself in different ways, right? Like some, some of you sitting here right now, you're like 80% truth and about 20% grace. Others of you are like 80% grace and like 20% truth, right? And only Jesus really was full of grace and full of truth. He was 100% grace, 100% truth. So it's really hard to be like Jesus, but, but you know, we, we, we're tasked as followers of Jesus tasked to ride the tension of grace and truth to be people of conviction as well as people of compassion sometimes though when you when you have a strongly held belief it's easy to be interpreted as not very compassionate all right sometimes when you have this strongly held belief somebody can possibly accuse you of being intolerant in fact, that's a word that floats around quite a bit these days, tolerance. Definition of tolerance is this, to, to recognize and respect others' beliefs, practices, etc., without sharing them. In other words, you, don't, you, you respect that person. You don't agree with what they believe or the ideas that they have, but you respect them. You, you value them as a human being. That's really what Jesus did in many ways. He, he respected people. He valued them. He didn't berate them because they disagreed with what he what he, what he believed in. And you see that in case in point is the, the, the woman caught in the act of adultery. Just because he had compassion on her did not mean that he was endorsing her lifestyle. He wasn't saying, hey, yeah, you know, just because I say to you, I don't condemn you, doesn't mean now I think prostitution is perfectly fine. No. It was grace and truth. Today's world, though, there's this challenge of tolerance. In fact, there's a book called The New Tolerance written by Josh McDowell and Hostetler. And this is how they define it. 
Every individual's beliefs, values, lifestyle, and perception of truth claims are equal. Let me repeat that. Every individual's beliefs, values, and lifestyle and perception of truth claims are equal. And that's really what's floating around these days. If you watch the media, if you, if you watch the news, if you, if you watch talk shows, oftentimes what you're getting is this idea, this new tolerance idea, right? But and what, what it basically is trying to say is that, you know, I might believe something and you might believe something that's diametrically opposed to what I'm believing and they're both valid truths. And that's, to be honest, that's not intellectually honest, is it? Like, I can look at you and say, that wall is green. You look at that wall, you, you know, by all color standards, that wall is beige. Although, the paint color says it's gray. So, I don't really know what it is, gray or beige. But, it's definitely not green, right? You would say that. That's not green. What are you talking about, Rich? And I could claim, that's a green wall. And that's my truth. That's how I see it. It's a green wall. And you might say, well, wait a minute. No, it's a beige wall. But for you to contradict that, for you to challenge me on that, for you to say it's, a, it's not a green wall, it's a beige wall, is for you to be intolerant. You don't recognize my truth. And that's really the world that we live in. Now I'm in deep waters, I know. Some of you are like, okay, I wonder what Rich thinks about this or what Rich thinks about that. I'm not going to answer but sometimes in that kind of world, it's easy for us to want to compromise, to acquiesce, you know, to basically give in to the cultural, cultural ideas and, and values that they have. To somehow know, look at the scriptures and say, okay, I will choose to believe wholeheartedly this and have conviction about certain parts and then not have conviction about other parts. And we may be tempted, and it's in that world that Peter's saying, listen, I'm calling you as a church to be a church of conviction. To stand on the truths of God's word. This will never shift. It will never move. Next week we're going to be talking more about, about God's word and the role it has. But that's the, that's the challenge of Peter for us today. But he's also calling us, the church, to live compassionately. To have compassion, to have love for those around. And oftentimes these two stand in, in tension against each other, don't they? I mean, you might feel that way, right? You might feel like, hey, for me to have compassion, for me to do what Jesus did, to look at that woman and say, I don't condemn you, it's like compromise, right? It's like giving in. It's like surrendering your values. And oftentimes, that's how we think. And we feel like we can't do that. We feel like we have to defend our values. We have to defend our, our ideas. We have to defend our theologies and our doctrines. But I think we lose sight of what Jesus says you should be known for. We're not, as a church, meant to be known for our convictions. We're meant to be known for what? You can say it out loud. How are we known? How, are we known to, how do people know that we are his disciples? By our love. By our compassion. See, there's a big problem when the world knows us more by our convictions than by our compassions. It doesn't mean you set aside your convictions in order to be compassionate. But we ride that tension between compassion and conviction, right? You see, Jesus gave us a brand new commandment that we should love one another. 
And by this, people will know that we are his disciples if we love one another. Peter talks about this kind of love and compassion. First Peter 3 says, finally, like I'll, as I wrap this up, finally, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Or, okay, let me, let me make it, bring it home. Or Facebook post with Facebook posts or Twitter or tweet with other, somebody else's tweet. Right? Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. In other words, as we repay evil with blessing, we are blessed. As we repay, let me put it in our words, as we repay evil with compassion, we are blessed. First Peter 4 says this, above all, this is Peter speaking, which he says, like, like th- this is the ultimate. This is above everything. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. That you can see a bunch of junk and garbage out there, but if you will just love, man, it just has a way of covering all that up. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. That word hospitality, actually in the Greek, is a compound word. It's two Greek words, philo and xenos, and that's how you say it in the, in the Greek. That particular word, fi, uh, hospitality, is philozenos, which basically means love strangers. And the word strangers is a very strong word. It's not like casual. It's like strangers. What it implies is people who think opposite than you, people who think differently than you, people who are on the, on the outside. Peter is talking about we are not of this world. And he's saying we should love the people that are outside of us. Love strangers. Verse 15, chapter 2, verse 15 says this, For it is God's will that by doing good, these acts of, of kindness and generous expression, by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. What if we started living this way as a church? Okay, let me, let's not make it a collective because, yeah, yeah, sure, let's live this way as a church. What if we as followers of Jesus started living this way? That we did not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. That instead we were hospitable, loving, caring, sympathetic, right? I mean, that's what, that's what we do with Servolution. Servolution is our, is our outreach. It's a revolution of service. That's basically where the word comes from, Servolution. And it's an outreach that we do here every year where we give thousands of pairs of shoes away and, and, and groceries and to total strangers, people who just walk through the door, no strings attached. We don't require them to walk through and, and sign a confession of faith or anything like that. We just simply say, we're here. We're here because this is an expression of the compassion of Christ to a world that's lost and disconnected. That's what Jesus did. By this, people will know that we are his disciples by our love. You see, when people begin to witness our compassion, when people begin to see it, genuinely see our compassion, our love to them, they get curious about our convictions. They ask questions like, I wonder why they do that. I mean, nobody else does that. Nobody else just gives away tens of thousands of pairs of dollars of worth of shoes with no strings attached. I get all these phone calls all the time, you know, like day before yesterday, I got a call from Branson, (laughs) 
And they're like, we're giving away a free this and that, whatever. And they just went on about these two vacations that I could take, you know. But my wife and I are looking at each other. We were in the car. We're looking at each other like, what's the catch? What's the catch? Because nobody just does that. And sure enough, there's a $169 catch, you know. It probably was a good deal, but still, there was a catch to it, right? That's not what Christ does. That's not how he offered his love. He didn't offer his love with a catch, with a hook. And Jesus invites us to do the same. In this world, we have an opportunity to shine brightly for Jesus. And then Peter gives us an example of what that looks like with Christ himself. Chapter 2, verse 21, he says, For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering. Just as Christ suffered for you, he is your example. Notice, Jesus is our example, what it looks like to suffer in this world. Sometimes when people don't understand you, don't get your faith, don't get your belief system. And you must follow his steps. He never sinned nor he deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, right? I mean, he could have called heaven down, but he didn't do that. He didn't retaliate, nor threaten revenge. He didn't like, you know, look at those guards at the cross say, man, wait till I get to heaven. Wait till I get to heaven, man. It's going to come down on you. He didn't do that, right? He left the case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. I like how verse 23 is paraphrased in the message version. It says, they called him every name in the book and he said nothing back. He suffered in silence, content to let God set things right. Can we remember that? Can you and I remember that it's God who sets things right? Too often we try to take God's job, the Holy Spirit's job. We want to step in there and do it for ourselves. But it's God who sets things right. Even Jesus did that. There's this professor I've talked about before, professor, author by the name of Rodney Stark. Um, he, uh, he did an extensive study of the, of the, of the Christian church uh, right after the death of Christ all the way to 300 plus AD till the time of Constantine. And in that study, he kind of just basically was, was, he was blown away by how, how fast and how, how rapidly the church grew during that time. It just exploded numerically, right? But yet, it was a time of probably the most intense persecution the church had ever experienced in, in human history. And yet he was kind of blown away by how fast it grew. They had no rights. I mean, they couldn't run for office. They couldn't cast a vote. There was no apparent freedoms. There was no bill of rights. There was no democratic system. And yet the church grew, right? They couldn't petition their congressmen and say, hey, we don't like this law. We need to change this law. They couldn't do that. And yet the church grew. It grew exponentially. And then he kind of gives some examples of how this happened. For example, he says that during this time, infanticide and and, and abortion were common in the Greco-Roman world. It was common for a a Roman parent to say a a, a girl, they're looking for a, a male heir, so a girl is born. They don't want that girl anymore. They don't want that girl. They don't want to feed that girl. They don't want to have to deal with that. So they take that young baby girl and they take her out to the woods and drop her off in the woods so the wild animals could eat her. Or if the child was born with some kind of deformity, it was not uncommon for them to take the child and dump them out in the woods. That was commonly practice. Nobody, nobody blinked at that. Nobody thought it was. And yet, here's a church that said, no, 
We will not do that. We will not do that with our own kids, and you should be doing that with your kids. In fact, Rodney Stark tells us that, that many Christians during this time would actually go into the woods and rescue some of those children and raise them as their own in their own home. In fact, he says that that's probably the beginnings of what, it, what, what today we know as orphanages, where Christians, Christians rescuing Roman children out of the, out of the woods. Church valued women and protected children in a culture that did neither of those. Christian men were called in the church to love their wives as equal partners, not as property, not as second-class second citizens, but as equal partners. All of this was completely foreign and utterly, utterly ridiculed by, by the then-time culture. And yet the church grew. And this list goes on and on and on. And the church exploded. What's really interesting is that during you know, this very Roman Empire during this time, that they were persecuting Christians, they were feeding them to the lions, they were, you know, they were second-class citizens, they weren't even citizens, as a matter of fact, they had no rights, they had nothing, and yet, in a matter of 300 years, it went from a Roman Empire to basically a Christian empire. It was done by, ma- by mandate, it was mandate, it was uh, imperial mandate, they basically, Constantine got up one day and said, you know what, we're no longer a heathen empire, we're now a Christian empire. <laughs> I don't know if that really works, but that's what he did, Right? Now, what's extraordinary about this is up to this point, the church was multiplying because, because they were living a countercultural lifestyle that was marked with the love of Christ. But once the Roman Empire basically became a Christian empire, it was no longer how they were responding to persecution with love, but rather now they were, they were like mandating morality. They were saying, the law is, you shall do this. You, have, you must attend church. That's the law. And there was a decline in the, in, the, in, the, in the Roman, in the Christian faith because of that, right? So they had basically replaced the spirit of, law, of, of love with this spirit of conviction rather than really riding that tension. Look, one of the best places for Christianity to thrive and flourish is when we don't have the mantle of power. When we, when we think that we, can, that we can basically push and promote Christianity through power, we fail, we lose. It's through compassion. When we trade love for power as a way of influence, we betray the very nature of Christ and the cross. In 1 Peter, Peter basically says this. <clears throat> he talks about how because their lives have changed, they've changed because we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, right? They've, they've experienced Christ in such a powerful way, they've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and that's what's brought transformation. They've experienced Christ very deeply, very personally. I was walking through the mall a few weeks ago, maybe it was, maybe it was a couple months ago, I don't know. Sometimes time just flies by me, but I, was, I was, had a meeting at the mall, and then I was walking out, and I was walking through the food court, and you know how those guys stand there with these old plates, you know, that teriyaki chicken, you know, and I'm like, I'm walking by and I see the teriyaki chicken and I'm like, oh no, no, thank you. You know, but the guy's like, oh, it's, it's good. And you know, and you, you know, he's forcing himself on me, you know, so I, I, it was not polite for me to say no. So I went ahead and took a sample, you know, just to appease the guy, you know, and, but I had, I had places to go. I had a meeting to get to, you know, so I, I took a sample and 
took a kind of a big sample. <laughs> and and the next thing I know, I'm sitting down, chowing down on Sarku Japan. I just went and bought some, you know. <laughs> Listen, we're surrounded by people who don't believe what we believe. They don't, they don't even care about what we believe. And why should they? They've not really signed up for it. But as Christians, we should be walking around handing out samples. Letting people taste of his kindness and his goodness and his love. I mean, imagine what, what would happen if we did that. Imagine if we went to our, 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 you know, if we walked around our schools or around our workplace or we walked in our neighborhoods and we were handing out samples with joy and a smile on our face. Imagine what would happen. Here's what I'm saying. At some point, the empty life, as, Paul, as Peter calls it, he, chapter one, he calls it the empty life. At some point, the empty life is going to catch up to them. At some point, they're going to feel hungry for more than what they've been going after. And it's at that moment that that sample is going to really taste good. It's at that moment that compassion and love that we're extending is really going to make a difference. Listen, we blame the decline of our culture on all kinds of things. But what if, what if we started today being people of compassion and conviction? There's a person that did that in my life. Spring of 1981, I was 18 years old and um, I had snuck out of my uncle's house and headed to this wooded area where I was going to do a little smoking if you get what I mean <clears throat> so I got done with that and it happened that this wooded area was right behind this church and so after I got done I got on my bike and I kind of rode down through the parking lot then I rode down this hill and uh, I saw there was a bunch of teenagers playing softball in this field you know and so I I pulled up to the back of the fence the very back of the fence I didn't really want to interact with them I you know I didn't want them to know what I was doing so I kind of stood away you know a little bit and watched from a distance for a while and then and then a a lady walked up to me her name was Naomi Deal and Naomi walked up and she said hello young man I'm sure instantly she noticed maybe the smell or maybe she noticed that I was a little high I'm sure but she didn't lay into me she didn't start telling me about how evil and wicked and wrong that was to do that She didn't try to keep me away from all these wholesome teenagers that were playing softball. Instead, this is what she said. Hey, my name is Naomi, and I'm uh, one of the the youth leaders here of of this church. It's right up the hill here called Memorial Assembly of God. And, and, uh, you know, this is our youth group here playing softball. We need another player. Would you like to play? You know what Naomi was doing? She had a little plate of samples. And I took one. And I felt loved and I felt cared for that it made me want more. So I kept going back until eventually I was going to church there. And today I stand before you, a pastor. Just because someone wanted to live with conviction and compassion, not one exclusive of the other. It's our challenge, church, to live in that tension, to figure it out, to learn how to love your neighbor who just totally does not believe what you believe, 
but learn how to love them and be compassionate towards them. We can change the world. Amen. Let's all stand. Next week, we're going to be talking about the place that God's word has in having conviction. What does that mean to have conviction and how we should you know, honor and respect God's word and how we should embrace God's word in our life. So I want to pray for you. We're in this series, As You Go. And the whole idea is for us to be witnesses in this world that sometimes can be, you know, can be hostile towards our faith. And if not hostile, at least not caring. They don't care at all, you know. And so the challenge for you and I is how do we live that faith out? What do we do? So today we started with conviction and compassion. Don't surrender your convictions. Don't give up on the things that you believe just because you want to be nice. But don't stop being nice just because you want to hold on to what you believe. And figure out that tension. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, I want to thank you this morning for your goodness, your grace. We thank you, Father, that when you looked at us and when you dealt with us, you didn't approach me and say, Rich, fix your life, stop smoking, stop doing these things, stop doing everything, then you could be a part. Father, you had compassion on me. You loved me. You gave me a sample. I was able to taste and see what is good. So, Father, we're asking that you help us to be people who are like those guys at the mall handing out samples of your goodness, of your love, of your kindness. And Father, if there's anybody in this room right now that has never ever, has never given their life to you, Jesus, never really, they can't say I've tasted, of, of, tasted and seen the goodness of God. They, they, they don't, they haven't experienced that. They've, they're, they're struggling. Maybe they're going through divorce. Maybe they're, they're addicted. Maybe, who knows, Father? Father, I just ask that you'll speak to their hearts even right now. That they'll take a step towards you, Jesus experience your compassion, your love for them. We thank you, Father, for what you're doing in Jesus' name.